Hey there, and welcome back to another podcast episode from Baylor Line. You're listening to The Linecast. I'm your host, Jonathan Platt, and this week I have a really, really great interview with a name that you probably recognize uh, not only from Baylor, but from the national discourse as well. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is the James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor, having also served as Graduate Program Director of the History Department and Associate Dean of the Baylor Graduate School. She's a 1996 graduate of the very same history department in which she now teaches. She earned her master's and doctorate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research focuses on European women, medieval and early modern England, and church history. She's the wife of a preacher and a contributor to Christianity Today, the Washington Post, and Religion News Service. Her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, was a runaway success. Here's my interview with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Dr. Barr, where does this interview find you? In my office in Tidwell. In Tidwell, in the newly re- renovated Tidwell. In the newly, I have a beautiful office. Yeah, it's my favorite office I've ever had at Baylor. So yeah, Fantastic. newly renovated Tidwell. Fantastic. Well, let's jump right into it. Um, your 2021 book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, got a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of it positive and some negative. Let's <laughs> yes. let's let's just start with the basics. How do you define biblical womanhood and what got you interested in writing a whole manuscript on that topic? Oh, good. So biblical womanhood is just the idea that women are called to follow the leadership of men and that this is rooted in, you know, as biblical womanhood, that this is rooted in scripture um, and that it is a divine calling. Um, so this, so it, I think along with biblical womanhood is the understanding is that women are equal and co-heirs spiritually with men, but yet they are called to, um, to submit to male authority within the church, within the home. And often this translates into broader society as well. And then what got you interested in pursuing a whole manuscript? Yeah. So I, I never thought I would write a book on biblical womanhood, especially one that went up into the modern era. Um, This is something that was born in the aftermath of my husband being fired in 2016 and also the trauma caused by um, the 2016 politics, I think, which traumatized a lot of people. And um, it made me start thinking about the impact of a theological understanding and how that played out on the larger um, political, economic, and religious stage of modern U.S. And at first, I didn't really have any thoughts about writing a book about it. I started writing some blogs about it. I used to blog, I blogged for almost 10 years, I think, on um, Patheos, on the anxious bench. And so I started blogging some um, some early ideas. You know, I called out Paige Patterson. Um, I wrote a blog, and then I wrote a blog at one point called The Myth of Biblical Womanhood. And one of my co-bloggers, a professor named John Turner, he said, hey, Beth, that would be a really good book. Um, and I didn't still at that point, it's kind of like, ah, that's interesting. It was in the back of my head. Um, and then in 2018, Caitlin Beatty, the editor of, um, she used to be one of the editors at Christianity Today. She was one of the youngest and um, first female editors there, I think. 
And she had recently gone to Brazos Press, which is a part of Baker. Um, and the idea behind Brazos was to start, you know, to to help um, close the gap between academia and the broader church, um, which is really intriguing to me. And they and Caitlin reached out and said, hey, Beth, have you thought about a book? And so we began that conversation then. Um, and of course, what I sent to her was my idea that John Turner had suggested to me from that original blog, The Myth of Biblical Womanhood. And so that was really when the idea was born. Um, neither of us had any idea what was going to happen with that book. Um, so it's still it's still all um, when I think back on it, you know, I just had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. Does this, uh, had this topic showed up in any of your teaching or any of your like academic research? Yes, exact. Uh, so the book itself is really based on my lectures. Um, I've been teaching women's history at Baylor since 2008. I was actually hired to teach European women's history courses. And so I have a sequence where I go from the ancient world to um, the central Middle Ages to 1200. And then I go from 1200 to um, suffrage, through suffrage, essentially. And so this is exactly what the chronology that we find in the making of biblical womanhood. And so the only way that I could conceptualize um, writing a book like this for the public was through doing it in my teaching voice. And yeah. so that's essentially what I did as I pulled, um, I pulled a lot of my old blogs to kind of get some thoughts about how to pull a book like this together. And then I pulled all my notes, um, my teaching notes and began to think about the framework um, of this book. So it's, it's what I teach. Yeah. The, the book came out in 2021. Was this a kind of COVID passion project? Did you, did you all of a sudden get an accidental sabbatical? No. Um, so as I said, I started, I signed the contract for the book in August, 2019, hmm. and I submitted the first chapter for it, I think in November of 2019. And then I submitted the next three chapters, um, up until February of 2019, and actually, I think maybe the first six chapter, uh, yeah, six chapters through the, through the, I submitted the introduction through chapter five and then COVID hit. Yeah. Um, and so COVID did allow me, I think, to finish it probably on time because my manuscript was due April 1st. Um, so that was like only two weeks after the pandemic had really, you know, picked up. Um, but, and I was a dean at the time during COVID, which was a horrible time to be a dean um, because we had to make all sorts of last minute decisions. And there was just, um, there was so much work. And so actually it was not a good time to be writing a book <laughs> for me. <laughs> So when the book came out, uh, Eliza Griswold wrote uh, a very excellent article in The New Yorker about you, the book, and the journey to writing it. Yeah, uh, She writes that your central argument is that the evangelicals often mistake cultural forces for biblical ones, yes. especially in the role of women. Kevin DeYoung in the Gospel Coalition uh, kind of summed it up this way. Patriarchy may be part of Christian history, but that doesn't make it Christian. Yeah. I read both of those. And I think those are pretty big claims. 
how do you think that we got here uh, so very much misunderstanding the role of women in the broader Christian church and the Christian yeah. story? Yeah. So, um, and Kevin DeYoung's, I think he was quoting me because that was actually a quote in my book that patriarchy ah, okay. may be a part of Christian history, but that doesn't make it Christian yeah. is what I said. And that's probably the most um, controversial claim that I made, uh, even though people, you know, I think anyway, on both sides, I think it's probably the most controversial claim um, that I made. And I think we have gotten here, you know, I, I think we have indeed misunderstood patriarchy, um, which is this general understanding that we find throughout history that um, men are, that men are in charge. It's a society that centers men um, over women. And um, so I think, I think two things really how we got here. Uh, first of all, in the church, the we have mistaken um, what happened in the Bible for God's desire <laughs> for what should happen in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we've mistaken the fact that the Bible was written in a patriarchal world. Um, every aspect of the Bible was written in a patriarchal world. Um, we cannot take that out of the biblical text. I mean, there's no way it's, um, there are some really horrible things that happen um, to women and the subordinate status of women throughout the biblical text is very clear. And I think we've mistaken the, the, the patriarchal, the historical reality of patriarchy in the Bible um, for God's desire for what women should be. And this is, always been extremely ironic for me um, because I think the hope of Christianity is that there is a better world, that there is a better, that um, the, the sins of humanity are not going to translate um, into the kingdom of God. You know, it's a new creation, a new earth. And it's really funny to me that we want to carry one of the most oppressive aspects of this world into the next one. And so, I, I mean, I think that's a big part is that we confuse what is in the Bible um, with what God intended the world to be like. Mm. Um, and so I, I would say that's one of the ways that we got to where we are today. Um, I think the other way that we got to where we are today is simply the historical reality of patriarchy and the fact that this is not just a Christian issue. Um, this is an issue that transcends um, um, faith. It transcends time. It transcends, you know, that's one of the hardest things about it. And so some people simply see it as this as well. If women have always been like this, then this surely is the way it should always be. Um, but the problem was that with that, and this was another point I was trying to get across in the making of biblical womanhood, is that even though this general concept that women are subordinate to men exists throughout human history, it is different in every culture and every time frame, um, which means that it is generated by culture. <laughs> and that, you know, it's not something that um, it, it doesn't, the, the patriarchy that we find in the Old Testament 
is not the basis for the patriarchy that we find in the modern church. So when Al Mohler says that the Christian church has never allowed for 2000 years female preachers, he's just wrong um, because he's looking at a uh, He's taking a patriarchal continuity, the very top, and then trying to say that the way we do it today is the way that it has always been. And yeah. that is just simply inaccurate. And I think that um, not understanding the contextualization of um, patriarchy throughout history has enabled us to generalize it and to perpetuate it. There, there was an article in the New York Times uh, a few weeks ago. It may have been a few months ago at this point uh, about the uh, the Southern Baptist Church and uh, some of its its smaller uh, conventions, such as the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, oh, yeah. um, re- removing uh, churches led by women from those conventions. Why do you think we're seeing a flashpoint of this right now? So this isn't the first time we've seen a flashpoint like this. I've just right. been in the SBC archives um, and another big flashpoint for this was in the uh, 1980s yeah. where we see a similar sort of thing happening. Um, and That was in line with the, the missionary callback, wasn't it? That was kind of yes. all at the same time. So the 1980s also had to do with the crackdown on chaplains, on female chaplains being ordained, as well as churches in the home mission board um, who had been started by the North American Mission Board and now had female pastors. And they began to defund those churches. Um, And so this has to do and this is also at the time where we begin, you know, it's shortly after the conservative resurgence. Mm -hmm. uh, too. And so we see this sort of crackdown when it's like, okay, we have the conservative resurgence, which says that women should, um, you know, do not belong in these leadership roles. So now we have to make that practice happen within our churches. Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, trying, because the Baptist world was not complying with this already. The Baptist world has never really complied with this understanding of male-female roles. Um, So what you have to do is when you crack down on it, you have to go through and start pulling out all of those non-compliant churches um, in order to say Baptists don't do this. Um, So I think, again, this is what we're seeing here is this crackdown once again, um, this emphasis on uh, masculine authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I think the most recent crackdown um, came, you know, it's come at the end of these, well, not the end, but the, the, the revelations of these sex abuse scandals where yeah. there has been significant um, corruption and misogyny mm-hmm. uh, and dangerous abuse that has been exposed in our everyday churches. I mean, people can't say that this is an anomalous behavior by some bad people. Yeah, um, it is so clearly in the core of uh, of modern evangelical churches, and so the the crackdown I think is in response to that because there's really two ways you can respond to it. You can be like, "Whoa, something's wrong. <laughs> Maybe we should." What's wrong? Why are why are we producing churches and pastors that are doing this? Let's figure this out. Or you can double down. And say the problem is that we are not following the rules that we already have. And yeah. I think what we've seen with the SBC is they've doubled down and refused to admit. Um, you know, I think one of the most famous quotes, one of the most where that stuck in my mind from the SBC 2023 was the pastor who stood up and said, um, what does it say that we are quick on the draw um, to that we are slow on the draw 
um, to address sex abuse and quick on the draw to fire female pastors. And that was just really revealing because that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of switching gears to a, a broader look at this. Uh, last week, Texas Monthly ran an article titled The Biblical Womanhood of Angela Paxton. Uh, it, it, Senator Paxton's a fellow Baylor graduate and the wife of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who is also a Baylor graduate. Uh, he was uh, impeached earlier this year and was then on trial. The article written by, and you know, here it is again, another Baylor graduate, Sandy Villarreal, uh, examines how Senator Paxton used Bible verses to respond during the trial's events. Uh, what caught my attention in it, it was a fantastic article, very interesting. Um, I hadn't put the pieces together on that, but uh, what caught my attention though, was how its title played off the title of your book. Um, Your work has become not only commentary, but a cultural comment, a a very definition of the word meme. How does that feel? And also, uh, why do you think we've latched on to this turn of phrase? Yeah. So I'm really glad you drew my attention to that article. It was funny after you sent it to me, um, several other people sent it to me as well. And so it kind of was like this, you know, it, I'm, I have to confess, um, I'm a medieval historian mm-hmm. and my major source for news is, um, usually, I'm sorry, I keep doing that with my hand, but my major source of news is usually I get home and I ask my husband to tell me <laughs> what I'm <laughs> think I should know today. (laughs) And sometimes he gets annoyed with me. Um, But nonetheless, so I found that really fascinating um, when I read it. And and indeed, it was an it was an incredibly insightful article. And I also found it brilliant how she used biblical verses. Um, I mean, the whole thing, I was like, whoa, she has this, you know, using biblical verses and then sending out pictures of herself in these particular posts. I mean, it it's totally conveying this. And you also think about who she is as a woman in politics in a high powered position with a high powered husband who does not seem to comply with this idea of biblical womanhood. And yet she is using this motif to, um, to generate support for her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she was generating support for her husband. That's actually interesting, you know, but it was clearly generating sympathy and support for her mm-hmm. that here she is in this political position, but yet she is still modeling this idea of a wife who is loyal to her husband and who believes and stands by her man um, because that is how God designed women to do. And that message was so clear. Um, so I, I found it fascinating. Um, I, I do think it's funny how the word biblical womanhood has latched on. Um, I think what I, I didn't coin the phrase, um, you know, this is something Rachel Held Evans used to talk about biblical womanhood mm-hmm. and, you know, she wrote the book, the year of biblical womanhood. Yes. And it's also, you know, it's a phrase that we find in this literature that's geared towards women, um, about being a biblical woman and biblical. So it's a phrase. So I used it because it is a phrase so common to women like me who grew mm-hmm. up in the Baptist world, um, But I think what it has helped in sort of the broader non-Southern Baptist world, um, I think it has helped people give a clear, you know, they're like, oh, 
that's what's going on. Mm. That's why women, in fact, I know this because, um, you know, I have all these medieval friends who read my book, you know, these medieval scholars all over the place. And, um, and I, you know, they, I was really gratified to get such a positive response from my, my peers. Um, and I remember one of them who wrote me and she said, Beth, the best thing this book did for me is first of all, she loved, you know, my medieval chapter and the reformation chapter, but then she was like, the best thing this book did is it helped me to understand my students. And she said, I had no idea how she was like, I didn't understand how we could have these brilliant women who were in school, who were, you know, had the potential to do all of these things. And yet we're still espousing this ideology that they are called, um, that their career will depend upon the decisions of their husbands. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and so she, you know, this would, was mind boggling um, to many of them. And they were like, thank you, because now I understand my students. So I think maybe that's why the term has really latched on is because it's given a way. Um, it's something that people within this world understand. Um, and then it's, but it's now something that people outside of this world can use it's a quick quick clear way to explain this phenomenon yeah um of women's behavior it's it's in line with uh jd vance's hillbilly elegy yeah uh, like it it is it is a it's 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 as much for us inside the bubble uh i i grew up in a in a rural community uh yeah. very similar to to vance's um and it's also for people who grew up outside of that to to better understand it. Uh, yes. That's very interesting. So what's it been like to become a, one of the, the chorus of representatives of this movement of studying and understanding and explaining this, this almost dichotomy of quote, biblical womanhood. There is this, we can see this specific definition of what it should be versus what it can be. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's been bewildering to be honest, um, to be in this space. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I joke often that I'm a medievalist, you know, I study 15th century sermons, which is not something you do because you want to be in the public space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's been, it's been a, a complete shift in, um, what I have found is expected of me actually, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is, I'm still sort of adjusting to. I'm actually in a period of kind of quiet right now. Um, I started, I started refusing, you know, denying, um, speaking engagements and, um, and podcasts and interviews for actually several months now. And it's been, well, thanks great- for taking this one. <laughs> Well, you know, it's Baylor, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's actually been really nice because it's allowed me to kind of clear my head and reflect. Yeah. Um, and so I found it to be highly, highly useful. It's also allowed me to disassociate to some degree where I've forgotten sometimes um, that that I was the person who wrote this book. And so that's been really nice, I think, um, because as I said, it's allowed me just to return to the way I felt before, I think, um, it's been, which has been nice. Um, but I'm also really grateful, I think too, because one of the things that I experience is I get to hear the stories of, um, women who have been helped 
And this is one of the things that scholars often don't always get to see. I mean, you know, we drop our books out there and maybe 10 years later, we find out that it um, really helped another scholar do something really significant. Maybe 20 years later, we get an award um, for it. But, you know, we it's just you just drop stuff out there into the conversation and it usually is a slow it's a slow build. Um, And you may never know the impact of it. And so it has been really incredible to begin to see the impact of this book, even before it was published. Um, And so, you know, I actually had a a person reach out to me uh, just a couple, three days ago on Facebook, who told me that um, when my book came out, she brought it to the uh, leadership at her church. Um, and now, uh, a little over a year later, they begin conversations about it. And now they have flipped on the issue of women in ministry and are now moving forward with no bars on women in leadership positions in their church. And, and those stories are just so encouraging to hear. Um, and it's, so I, it's, so I'm really grateful to be able to see that, um, but at the same time, it is it is bewildering um, a lot of the time because it's I sort of feel like I'm in whiplash sometimes or going back and forth between these personas of being a, um, just a professor at Baylor and then having to be out there on the public stage or suddenly finding myself in the middle of a huge fight on Twitter over something that. <laughs> so that, you know. that was that was my next question is you you've described what it's like navigating in that positive response. But what what is it like navigating a negative response? And how do you keep those? Uh, you, know, you know, I don't know a single author who doesn't occasionally go check their one star reviews. Like, how do you? Keep, oh, gosh. Yeah. How do you so, keep that from like bleeding in? Yeah. So, OK, so the good news about all of this and I'm, I very much am a let's look on the bright side um, type of mm-hmm. person. So I always try to find the silver lining. One of the good news is, is that I am really good with criticism now. Mm. You know, this is like, I'm like, yeah. you know, it, it, it is very, especially if it's a fair criticism, mm. it's like, you should have done this better. And I'm like, oh, you're right. I probably should do that better. So I am not afraid of criticism at all anymore. Um, but at, you know, in the beginning, um, it was overwhelming yeah. the amount of, you know, because very early on, I got labeled as a danger. Um, you know, I think I was on Al Mohler's briefing before the book was even published. Um, I definitely just, didn't. You've, you've mentioned him a couple of times. Just can you explain tell who, you who Al, Al Mohler, Mohler is one time? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's one of those people that I'm like, surely everybody knows who Al Mohler yeah. is. So Al Mohler is, um, used to be one of the golden boys of the Southern Baptist convention. Um, he was hoping to actually be elected president of the Southern Mm. Baptist convention, but his, he failed in that. Um, he was one of the architects of the conservative resurgence, um, and became the president of Southern Baptist theological seminary Mm. which is in Louisville, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. which is the flagship of the Southern Baptist seminaries. And so he oversaw sort of the dismantling of women in leadership and the women being pushed out, um, yeah. of there. He also oversaw the um, creation of the Pastors' Wives Institute at Southern, um, which is actually going to manifest in my current book project. Um, and then he is one of, I think he's one of the most influential voices in the Southern Baptist world um, for this type of gender 
hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, mm-hmm. if you saw the 2023 Southern Baptist Convention, he is the guy who spoke in rebuttal to both Rick Warren um, as well as Linda Barnes Popham. And they were the two pastors who stood up to defend um, being allowed, their churches being allowed to remain within the SBC, despite the fact that they had ordained women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned earlier about the students uh, and as one of the top rated professors, I, I know that you really care about your students. How have you seen them change over your 15 years in the classroom, specifically when it comes to that? I mean, you know, we're, we're at Baylor and, yeah. you know, Baylor has that, you know, I- I- historical place of being the, 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 you know, the Jerusalem on the Brazos, the, the, you know, the place that Baptists come. And now, you know, for uh, the first time, we're looking at a majority religious minority at Baylor, you know, fewer and fewer students are uh, not only not Baptists, but, you know, not identifiably a part of any specific sect of a religion. Uh, How, how have you seen the students change uh, in, in that nature around the idea of biblical womanhood? When I first started teaching um, women's history at Mm -hmm. Baylor in 2008, um, I had to convince my students that patriarchy was a real thing. Mm. (laughs) This was actually, you know, this idea that there is a, um, that there are structures in place, that there are social structures that um, continue, that make it where women, uh, you know, the legal uh, system, the economic system that disadvantage women, and that these are things that repeat over and over, you know, in different ways, different manifestations, but it's something that, you know, is a constant throughout history. Yeah. And this was often something that I had to, I had to convince my students um, that it was actually a real thing. And so that I think, and I don't have to do that anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, in fact, I, I've said this before, after the Barbie movie, you know, Barbie did me a huge favor because I was going to bring up Barbie later. Yeah. <laughs> Barbie did me a huge favor because everyone's like, oh yeah, patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, it's like, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, now people may still have strong opinions about it. And yeah. I think one of the things that I've seen, you know, so on the one hand, there's been easier things. I think people are like, oh yeah, women um, are often not in leadership positions. They do make less money than men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're beginning to realize that it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s um, that women begin to be able to do things like take out credit cards in their own name and have house mortgages. Um, so those types of things are becoming more common knowledge, I think. But I am starting to see more of a polarization, mm-hmm. especially within my, you know, on the one hand, like, for example, I did an event last night and, um, I've been thinking a lot about the, about how I could have done the event better. I mean, I think most of the students were all fine, but I had one student who was, um, from a Southern Baptist church, whose church stood up publicly and affirmed what happened at the 2023. Um, and I also had a couple of students in that, in, in that group who came from Methodist spaces where they had female pastors and had never not seen women in the pulpit. Um, And so what, and what I found was that there was not a, the dialogue to get them to talk to each other was really hard. 
Um, and in fact, I think the, um, I think, you know, the Southern Baptist student probably instead of thinking more about what we were talking about, probably left just thinking that this was a, you know, completely progressive space that had, that wasn't biblically accurate. And, and I find that, so, you know, I wrote the making of biblical womanhood, actually not to try to reach the people who are in the most complementarian spaces, because those people aren't even going to read me. I wrote it for the people who were in the middle, who had grown up in this space and thought something was wrong, but didn't know what it was. And those were the people that I was really thinking about in my audience. But now as I'm moving forward, I'm realizing I need to figure out how to reach that polarization on both sides, Mm. you know, sort of this idea that, um, and that is, that is challenging Um, to, so I think I've, so I think there are, there are some, there are significant changes that I have seen in my students over these issues um, that I try to figure out almost on a day-to-day basis, how best to navigate them. Yeah. So is there an unmaking of biblical womanhood book coming? (laughs) So, um, you know, that was what was supposed to be the last, my last chapter was supposed to be titled um, Remaking Biblical Womanhood. And when mm. I got to that final chapter, I was like, no, I, I don't want, we are not about making a system for women. We are about setting women free, you know, yeah. to be whatever God wants them to be. So, um, so no, because part of me kind of is, you know, I, despite my last chapter, which was a call to action. Um, which is, I think, what made me put me on so many people's target list. Um, I am a historian. And so I am more interested in in the power of the making of biblical womanhood. I have found, despite my final chapter, is actually in the uncovering, showing people the pieces of how we got to where we are. So what they do with that Mm -hmm. is not what I can control or direct. Um, so I have decided to invest my efforts in showing people how the pieces came together. So my next book, which I am deep in, um, is called Becoming the Pastor's Wife. And mm-hmm. it tells the story of how the rise of the pastor's wife role intersects with the decline of female ordination. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's absolutely fascinating, even more fascinating than I thought it was when I got into it. Mm-hmm. Um so it sort of follows the chron- chronology of the making of biblical womanhood, but it um, is focusing on on women's ordination and then the rise of the pastor's wife role um, in the post-Reformation world and what and how that has affected the church. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great transition to my, my last question before we do like some, some lightning round. Um, and it's, you mentioned earlier about this season of quiet. Right? Yeah. We've we've ta- we've talked a lot about like Dr. Barr. Like we've talked a lot about like the 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 academic and the author. I'm curious what's coming out of this season of quiet instead for Beth. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of refinding um me and the space uh for me and so um 
one of the things that I have been able to do is, uh, you know, I have a, I have a 13 year old and a 19 year old. And so my son's a college freshman actually at Baylor, which has been a lot of fun. It was a hard transition, even though we're still here, but he's doing well. And then I have a 13 year old, um, you know, which is kind of hitting like one of the most difficult moments, you know, mm-hmm. school is just really hard. Um, and so this year, one of one of the things that happened to me, I think when my husband was fired and we left our church where we had our friendships and our roots for years and years, and then we were kind of in trauma mode and then COVID happened and we never really had the chance to re-engage with like remake some of our friendships that had just lot that we lost. I mean, you know, leaving a church that you've been in for a very long time is like a divorce and you just lose people and, um, and it leaves, it causes, it's, it's traumatic. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been doing this year is like trying to really make connections again with real people, not as the author of the making of biblical womanhood, but as simply the, the, um, you know, the mom of my daughter (laughs) and my son. And so like one of the things that I learned to do this year was how to keep the books in volleyball. So I've been keeping the scorebook in volleyball for all of my daughter's volleyball games. I've actually, it's actually really fun. I've gotten good at it. Um, and so, and also trying to be much more intentional, intentional about making time for, um, for, for relationships, um, real relationships, um, which means that I don't have time to do as many social media events. I don't have mm-hmm. time for as much of social media. I've actually gone completely off Twitter or X, whatever. I went off before it made the transition to X. So I haven't even seen it in that space. Um, yeah. You're on threads. I see you on threads all the time. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I hop on and off on threads, but I forget about social media now. Yeah. And I actually really like that. I like not feeling like I have to always be there because I would rather be at home watching Doctor Who with my daughter (laughs) or even trying to do things with my husband. Like, um, and so we, so that's actually been really great to uh, spend, to spend more intentional time with my family um, and remaking some relationships that we lost through this whole process. Um, and, and so I think that's been, that's been good for us as a family and for me as a person. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do some like, like fun ones? Okay, cool. We'll see if I can do them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other than your own, what's the book you've given away most often? Oh, you know what? It's Stephen King's on writing. (laughs) Oh, love. Yes. Love. I mean, I, in fact, I have extra copies of it in my office. I give it to people all the time. I'm like, this is the most brilliant book on writing you will ever read. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, that so, that that one and uh, Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird are like yeah you know I read that one reference. too and it was good but for some reason that Stephen King one just mm-hmm. resonated with me yeah and he and he made me a better writer yeah definitely oh so, yeah uh, I've heard I won't name the professor but I've heard a professor say I would love to read Stephen King's books more if he followed his advice and on writing that's interesting yeah. you know I actually wasn't a Stephen King fan yeah and then I read this autobiography and I was like this is brilliant and mm-hmm. then i've read a couple of his books since then i read the fairy tale book which mm. i thought the first part of it was really good and mm-hmm. the last part of it wasn't so good um yeah but you know i i tried to get through it a couple of years ago and i just it's it's like i i mean you could like drop it on a small dog and kill it like it's, it's read, just too much i read the first part like that i mean yeah. just yeah ran through it and then when it got to the second part um it 
got it got more muddy, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's you know, a good it, word. Yeah. It, yeah. And um, but it was still good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad I finished it. But yeah, but no, his on writing well, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's yeah. really magnificent. Yeah. So on on the topic of of books and fun stuff, um, what are you slash y'all? Maybe you and your husband have a show you're watching. What are y'all like reading or watching or enjoying? Have you gotten into like pickleball or something? (laughs) No. Um, So my son is an avid tennis player. And which means that we probably should do more of those things. So we, we watch a lot. Um, my husband's a runner. He runs, um, quite a bit at Cameron park. I used to be a runner, but decided I wanted to keep my knees. So now (laughs) I, now I walk, we go, you know, so we do try to go on the mornings. I don't teach early. I try to go to Cameron park with him and, Hmm. um, we go walk and he goes running with our, with our whip it mix and I walk and it's just really, it's lovely. Um, we do like sci-fi, Mm-hmm. Uh, we are even before we met each other, we were both Star Trek fans and Star Wars fans that happened. Are you watching Ahsoka? Yes. It's we on tonight. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, indeed. We don't get to watch it tonight because it's Wednesday night. Um, is it Wednesday night? No, it's Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, we won't watch it until Thursday night. Um, cool. that's usually when we can watch it as a family, but we, so we're, we watch all of those. Um, we also are, um, actually going to go see, there's a few theaters in Texas that are showing the Lord of the Rings on the big screen. And so oh. we're taking our kids, um, we got even our son to come back because we're going to take him and our daughter to go see it on the big screen, because mm-hmm. um, they never saw them on the big screen. Yeah. And so anyway, so we do, we do things like that, but we do not miss any of the Star Wars miniseries, nor any of the Marvel miniseries. We've actually, mm-hmm. I'm really waiting for Loki to come out. I thought that was mm-hmm. one of the most brilliant writing. So I love that. And then my doc, my daughter and I are Doctor Who fans. So we mm-hmm. are sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for the new David Tennant um, Mm -hmm. Doctor Who to come out in November on Disney plus. So we are waiting for that. Yeah. Uh, Who's a Baylor faculty member whose research you're really excited about right now. Um, So one of my colleagues, Alicia Kaufman just came out with a new history book called turning Mm -hmm. points in American history. And I have been so ready for a female scholar to tackle this because so many of these types of books just completely leave women out of the narrative. So I am really excited about her book. Um, I'm also Greg Garrett just has a new book out on James Baldwin, um, which, yeah, which I think is just, uh, is going to be really great. Um, And then I, you know, in the history department, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the history department. Um, But one of my most, one of my favorite books that a Baylor faculty member have written um, is um, Zhao Chavez and Michael Parsons, who wrote the book on Antonio, Antonia um, Teixeira, who was the Brazilian girl who um, was raped by a relative of uh, Rufus Burleson. Oh, yes. They wrote, it's a fantastic book that I think just speaks to so many different areas. Um, And then uh, Malcolm Foley has a book coming out soon. um, And I'm really excited for his book on race and um, capitalism in the U.S. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I could keep going. I have great colleagues at Baylor. You can, you can always send me any, I'm always looking for, for another book and also another person to talk to who loves these kind of subjects. Oh yeah. 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 It's it's always so fun to talk to an author, like somebody who has like said, I care enough to go, you know, a hundred thousand words on a topic and yeah. (laughs) Well, the history department's a good place for you. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Indeed. A lot of words. (laughs) 
um, so like most professors, I'm sure you have something deeper than the subject matter that you want your students to walk away from their time with you. Uh, if you could condense that down and put it on a billboard, what would it say? Another so, way of thinking about this is what does every young person need to hear? One of the things that um, I think, and in fact, I just, I'm laughing because I just actually saw it on a meme actually where it took this down and it was, um, I think it was a meme from the office um, and it says uh, gender is a social construct um, that if something changes over time that, you know, it is some, it is not, um, it is not destiny. And I think what I would like my students to know is that um, change is always possible mm -hmm. and that there, that history, history gives us reason to despair, but it also gives us reason to hope. And I want my students to be able to walk away with that hope um, that we can change and that even one person can matter. Yeah. Um, and so I think that I would, I want my students to walk away with that hope that I feel. Um, and that is also rooted in my, um, in my theology, um, that, and that, and my belief that God created humanity to be able to be better. Yeah. And so that's what I want my students to see. They're lucky to have you. Uh, what's your favorite Waco restaurant? No chains, no chains allowed. Oh gosh, we don't eat very often at chains. Um, so uh, my family ate so much at Key Talks that they sent me chicken soup to the hospital when my son was born. <laughs> I love that. Um, um, also Casa de Castillo, they know us by name, and when we're not there for a while, they remark upon it. Um, they call, call into they call into a wellness check. <laughs> Yeah, we have to tell them. Like, the Barnes died if he yeah. can't sleep. Well, yeah, you know. So I think those are maybe, um, maybe two is uh, that. Yeah. We, but we are all about the local restaurants. I'm yeah. on first name terms too with um, Heritage Creamery. Mm -hmm. um, I love them; they are fantastic. And so, anyway, that's where I get all my cookies and ice cream from. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, before we got started, you gave me a couple of songs that you could listen to forever or that are lodged in your brain forever, whichever way we want to see this. Uh, a couple of them are, or excuse me, a few of them are uh, Fight Song by Rachel Platten, Shut Up and Dance by Walk the Moon, uh, the Hamilton soundtrack, Anything by Bon Jovi, which was used in your writing of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, uh, You're the Inspiration by Chicago, and uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack. Okay, so now now we get to, now we get to bring it back home. We get to bring it all together. What do you think? Okay, somebody just heard that. What do you think that this mixtape tells someone about you? Make it make sense. I don't know. Maybe it's that it that people are complex um, and that the things that we like are often influenced by the people we're around. And every single one of those songs is a memory for me from dancing in ballet as a child. I was a very bad dancer, by the way, um, to you're the inspiration to listening with my daughter in the car to walk the moon and fight song um, to even the Pirates of the Caribbean, which, as I said, I think that soundtrack, it was so it it was a really good soundtrack to write to. And that's how I finished my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> so I think maybe that's it. That, um, that, yeah. I love it. Okay. My last question. 
what are you most wholly and deeply grateful for right now? Um, so I am really grateful despite all of the things that have happened in my life. Um, I am really grateful for the people who have been around me through this entire process and who continue to be around me. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Doral, my family's been very involved in Mission Waco for a long time. And I remember Jimmy Doral once saying that the definition of homelessness is people without friends. And that has always really struck with me that, you know, that when we don't have people, we, when we don't have any of those support networks, we don't have people to rely upon, that that's when, um, that's when we lose everything. Mm -hmm. And that has always, that's made me very, um, very concerned um, mm -hmm. about helping in places like Mission Waco and Tri-Cities Ministries in Waco. But it's also just made me very grateful for the people who have always been in my life um, you know, from my children and my husband to my colleagues, um, and to my, to my broader family. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Beth Allison Barr is the James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor. She joins us from her office on campus. Dr. Barr, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.